On today's show, I discuss the narrow definition of entrepreneurship and how Medicare for All would foster entrepreneurial pursuits, plus how conservatives claim to support entrepreneurship while supporting healthcare being tied to employment is hypocritical at best. I also discuss how planned obsolescence and consumerism adds to our consumer debt. I also talk about manufacturing, China, and Davos, and how our consumerism supports human rights abuses, practices that we have done away with in this country, but still foster around the world. You're listening to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan, where we take a hard look at the past as well as the present in an effort to construct an amazing future. Your host is Michael Bazan. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan. I hope everyone is faring well during this crazy time. And one of the last things we talked about was the belief in pulling oneself up by the bootstraps. Not the bullstraps, the bootstraps. And how conservatives and moderates bastardize that idea by using it to justify the institution of policies and systems that impede individual freedoms and impede the pursuit of happiness, success, and prosperity, while enriching those who have already been more than enriched, financially at least. So here's an example. Conservatives will say that they are for entrepreneurship, but they define it narrowly, to say the least. There are endless forms of entrepreneurship. For instance, Indeed lists nine of the main types. One is small business entrepreneurship, large company entrepreneurship, scalable startup, social, innovative, hustler, imitator, researcher, buyer. I'm not going to go through all these, but I will say that small business entrepreneurship includes the family restaurant, the neighborhood pub, boutiques, artists, hairdressers, plumbers, electricians, and many others. Now, when conservatives or moderates say that they support entrepreneurship, my opinion is that they are only referring to scalable startups and innovative entrepreneurship, the kinds that will require multiple rounds of VC investment. So to that point, all these people have stated that healthcare should be tied to employment. In my mind, these two sentiments, supporting entrepreneurship and healthcare being tied to employment, are contradictory at best. And that is not even really debatable unless you also hold a very narrow, incomplete, and inaccurate definition of what an entrepreneur is. In some instances, the VC funding will make the funds available for companies to provide benefits, but not everyone is in their garage creating Google, Apple, or Amazon. Some of us are just trying to take care of our families while hopefully making the world a better place to live. That's the impetus of what I'm doing, and believe me, there is no VC funding involved in this entrepreneurial endeavor. So if healthcare is only tied to employment, where does that leave the neighborhood restaurant, many of which are closing left and right due to Trump's inability to battle the virus? Not even inability, just lack of desire. But where does that leave the local boutique, hairdresser, plumber, electrician, a therapist, artist, the nonprofit founder, or any other person trying to create something of their own. Now, we are constantly voting against our own self-interest. And you know the powers that be have vast sums of money to pay for that influence. Remember, there are only six companies that control 90% of what we watch, see, and hear. I mean, is there really any logical reason that we elect the majority of the people that we do? 
It's just name recognition and marketing. I mean, right now we have literally Boss Hog in the White House, the rich jerk that only cares about himself. That's insane. It's funny that sheep and sheeple is used so rampantly by all sites now as if being a sheep is a new thing. This rampant marketing of name recognition has been going on for quite a while. Going further and further parts of the series, I will cover the history of credit, focusing primarily on the last 50 years, tax code, consumerism, and planned obsolescence. The history of debt and how the lack of wage growth combined with the rising cost of living has exacerbated inequality in this country and really around the world. For the moment though, let's talk briefly about planned obsolescence. How many of you are familiar with this term? It's something that's been rampant since the 1950s, but it started much earlier. Mary Bellis recollects that by the mid-1800s, the United States was in the midst of an industrial revolution. As the nation expanded westward and industry grew, urban populations mushroomed and the middle class emerged with money to spare and boundless enthusiasm for labor-saving devices. Now, before manufacturing turned its focus on consumer goods, families and small communities typically produced all that was needed. Here's a bit from Wikipedia on consumerism. Consumerism is a social and economic order that encourages the acquisition of goods and services in ever-increasing amounts. With the Industrial Revolution, but particularly in the 20th century, mass production led to an economic crisis. There was overproduction. The supply of goods would grow beyond consumer demand. And so manufacturers turned to planned obsolescence and advertising to manipulate consumer spending. This is not a hidden dark secret. It's out in the open and we're all subject to it. Advertising is why I mentioned the media, but now let's talk about planned obsolescence. Now, planned obsolescence is the purposeful implementation of various strategies designed to get a customer to buy another similar product by making the older one useless, undesirable, or non-functional within a set period of time. There are four main ways in which a company can achieve planned obsolescence. Contrived durability, software updates, perceived obsolescence, and prevention of repair. Does any of this sound familiar? Perhaps you recognize this was happening, but just didn't know what it was called or that it was pervasive. I believe that this is a rule and not the exception. And if you're so inclined to research it further, which I definitely encourage on anything I talk about, you will find a few examples. Stephanie Buck claims that GM invented planned obsolescence during the Great Depression and that we've been buying it ever since. Another example is Bernard London's 1932 pamphlet, Ending the Depression Through Obsolescence, where he espoused the theory that creating products with an artificially shortened lifespan could boost the economy and lift the nation out of the Great Depression. Now, planned obsolescence can be achieved in various ways depending on the product, and this is how it translates to the modern world. First is using relatively unreliable parts in a product so that it mechanically fails in a predictable period of time. Second is using software to program a product, like a printer for instance, to fail after a set period of time or number of actions. Third is having a new software purposely being incompatible with older hardware. Fourthly is using clever marketing about insignificant upgrades to get you to discard the old one and buy the new one. Some in tech will be defensive of this like WC Crawford who said, planned obsolescence is largely a myth. Yes, nobody says we'll make sure this product will break in five years. Instead, they say we're going to have to support this for five years. Design it so that almost all of them survive that long and don't bother trying to make them last longer. It's too expensive. 
In the end, it's the same thing, just without the tint of evil. And I'll say three things. First is that we all now know that planned obsolescence is pervasive in the consumer market and is by no means a characteristic of just the tech industry. It is part of every consumer good. Secondly, we do need to get away from deeming this or that as evil or good and bad. As Noam Chomsky said, you can use a hammer to build a house or you could use a hammer to smash somebody's head in. It's how we wield our power that makes us even able to begin to ascertain if it's good or bad. But issues and life are more complex than a binary. Thirdly, I'd venture to say that the reason that making a product last longer is too expensive, according to W.C. Crawford, is not due to the materials used, although that would add some cost, but it's more due to the fact that producing a product that lasts longer would result in less products sold. It's not complicated math. If a $1,000 phone lasts five years, you can sell 10 of them per person in a 50-year period. If they last 10 years, you only sell five per person. Believe me, more complicated numbers than this are crunched by those making every product. This is built into the business model for just about everything, and it would be a far stretch to say that planned obsolescence is beneficial to consumer, to the consumer or really to anyone but the manufacturer and maybe the stockholder. That not only saves money in the initial outlay, but gets to parlay that saved expense into potential recurring revenue. Now, we've seen it in everything from textbook, cars, fashion, to computers, software, and mobile phones. I think Adam Sarhan said it more accurately when he stated, one could argue that planned obsolescence is good for investors, but not for consumers. So what, you might say, uh, how does this affect me? Well, in many ways. First, the initial topic is consumer debt. So when consumer goods have planned obsolescence baked into their design, the consumer pays more. Also, this concept, along with the worship and perpetuating of an ever-growing economy and GDP, keeps us producing products, waste, pollution, and generally keeps us on the trajectory that is unhealthy and unsustainable for all life that inhabits planet Earth. And to remind you, before the consumer culture was manufactured, families and communities were pretty self-sufficient and way more free and independent than we find ourselves today. Christopher Ryan in Civilized to Death would argue that humans as hunter-gatherers were pretty self-sufficient before civilization itself. I would say there is a slight of hand occurring. I would argue that the more products and feigned progress that we are presented with that always comes with a promise of freedom actually has us more confined and less free than ever. And on top of that, we are being led away from what really matters in life. I admit that this is not simply binary or simplistic and that we have the ability to utilize advancements for the benefit of all in lieu of the detriment. But there is truth in that, and this scenario happens more often than not. Christopher Ryan states that we tend to confuse progress with adaptation. Evolution doesn't presuppose that a species is getting better as it evolves, merely that it is growing more suited to its environment. I would venture to say that we live in a pretty sick world, and it is set up in a way that those that are most acclimated to this sick world are the ones who prosper. It certainly does not hurt to be born wealthy, but even if you're not born wealthy, a worship of money and a willingness to put ethics aside will put you on the path to what is deemed success in our world. The non-participation in industries that do harm 
and or the refusal to work with ethically challenged people takes a financial toll. Our society values the wrong things, and it is evidenced in the pay scale. For instance, pharmaceutical companies or fossil fuel industries have high pay, when organizations that are trying to make the world a better place have to rely on volunteers. Then there are teachers, and many other low-paid professions just above that. For instance, side-by-side, two people over a 30-year period, one works for a large corporation for that period and the other works for independent businesses. They both work hard. They're both tired at the end of the day. They both have long weeks. Neither deserves to be financially unstable. But how does this play out when independent businesses are unable to offer benefits more often than not? Usually just a meager wage or salary that is taxed. You know, some would say, then go work for a corporation and get all those benefits. But not everyone wants to be part of a detrimental machine. And there are many who pay the price for that financially. But back to our topic. And not to mention that both the agrarian and industrial revolutions perpetuated slavery child labor, and a myriad of other social ills, and they still do in some parts of the world. It's just not as obvious to us, but agriculture-wise, abuses occur in many places around the world. For instance, Hannah Kaiser in her article, Agricultural Workers Face Constant Horrific Human Rights Violations, a new UN report shows, she states that an average of 170,000 agricultural workers are killed at work annually and that agricultural workers are twice as likely to experience a fatal workplace accident compared with workers in other sectors. Other than that, extremely low wages are dominant. She goes on to say that agricultural workers in Zambia, for example, work for less than $2 a day on third-party farms. The dependence on farm owners for work opportunities perpetuates generational cycles in poverty. Similar terribleness occurs today in manufacturing, predominantly in China, which is both condemned and perpetuated by the countless business leaders and heads of state that convene annually at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. In an article by Prablin Bajpai titled Why China is the World's Factory, he lists some of the main reasons. Reason number one is disgusting and obvious. Lower wages, Bajpai states, that the law of supply and demand tells us that since the supply of workers is greater than the demand for low-wage workers, wages stay low. As I said, it is how one wields power that is important, and this is just pure exploitation by not only China, but the rest of the world, and even you and me, if we're being honest. He goes on to say that China doesn't follow, not strictly at least, laws related to child labor or minimum wages, which are more widely observed in the West. At least they're more widely observed in the West now, but they were not always. It took people rising up in a very similar way as they are now to change those things. In the article Child Labor and the Industrial Revolution, which is attributed to a collection of writers and editors at History Crunch, it states that factories, well, this is about the U.S., by the way, it states that factory owners wanted to employ children for several reasons. First, children generally made considerable less than adults for doing the same work. For example, some estimates show that children were paid between 10 to 20% that of an adult. Therefore, the owners saved money by employing children. 
Second, children were generally more obedient than adults in terms of completing work and accepting punishment. Lovely, isn't it? That's one of the many ways our country was built, and now we still support just about any practice just as long as it increases the profit margins for large corporations. Bajpai lists the second reason as business ecosystem. Essentially, over the last 30 years, China has cultivated an ecosystem to support the manufacturing supply chain, including component manufacturers, low-cost workers, a technical workforce, assembly, suppliers, and customers, by relying on networks of suppliers, component manufacturers, distributors, government agencies, and customers who are all involved in the process of production. For example, American companies like Apple take advantage of supply chain efficiencies in the mainland to keep costs low and margins high. And they are so amazing at marketing and extolling consumerism while embracing planned obsolescence that patriotic American consumers literally form huge lines to get their hands on the new shiny model. And I take responsibility as well. I admittedly own Apple products, but it's time that you and I reevaluate our rampant consumerism and break out of this conditioning. But I will always take responsibility for what I'm responsible for. I'm not claiming immunity from the world's conditioning. And introspection includes myself, Introspection is a requirement for improvement, goal setting, and building anything worthwhile, whether it's working on oneself, one's community, or one's country, all of which are what I'm trying to do here. The third reason listed in why China is world's factory is lesser compliance. He states Chinese factories are known for not following most of these laws and guidelines, even in a permissive regulatory environment. Chinese factories employ child labor, have long shift hours, and the workers are not provided with compensation insurance. Some factories even have policies where the workers are paid once a year, a strategy to keep them from quitting before the year is out. Environmental protection laws are routinely ignored, thus Chinese factories cut down on waste management costs. According to the World Bank report in 2013, 16 of the world's top 20 most polluted cities are in China. But before you declare your moral superiority, remember that we bear responsibility for this as well. We are complicit as consumers and our corporations and politicians are collaborators. In Keith Bradshaw's The Story of China's Economic Rise Unfolds in Switzerland, he gives a bit of a history about how China and Davos have since become one of the oddest power couples in international economics and politics since 1979, with the arrival of a small team of free market economists led by Chinese intellectual Xian Rui. Chinese leaders have repeatedly chosen the forum for important policy speeches. According to CBS News, attendance is by invitation only, and Reuters reported that About 3,000 business and political leaders are set to attend Davos in 2020. Government and corporations could not be more of an open book. This is what is expected of, of us to keep the rich rich. This is what they desire. Populations need to be workers and consumers. Manufacturing needs to produce the biggest profit margins at the expense of human rights and the quality of our air, land, and water. Money is God. Regulations are bad. Our obligations are to the shareholders, not the vast majority of humans that these enterprises 
detrimentally affect. While people are talking about and believing in demon sperm, QAnon, Alec Jones rhetoric, and deep states, the real enemies that are right in front of us and obvious continue to thrive, mostly unchecked and just about fully supported by us. Their propaganda is so effective that we have hordes of Americans protesting for their right to buy stuff. It is absolutely a ludicrous state of affairs that we find ourselves in. Thanks again for following and supporting Looking Forward with Michael Bazan. I wanted to ask all of you a question. I'm thinking of developing Looking Forward Daily, which, as the name implies, would be daily at least Monday through Friday. Now, with the current format, my goal was to tell more of a historical story, one that stands the test of time a bit better than a daily show. Episodes that would still be relevant years down the road. Plus, there are already so many people across the political spectrum feigning shock and awe with every action an opposing party has. So I was initially put off by doing that format. And keep in mind, if I did a daily show, it wouldn't be exactly that format, but I would be reacting to daily events. And I'm not against listening to that format, it just didn't appeal to me to do myself. But I firmly believe that we're on a moving train and we need to act swiftly and consistently to create the change that is needed in our communities, in our country, and in our world. Now, down the road, I also plan to develop an interview format. I'm a pretty independent person, so I started with a format that did not rely on anyone else's time, work, or participation. It's 100% my effort, other than the commissioned artwork and audio intro and outro, but you get the idea. But now it's time to branch out a bit, uh, spread my wings, start you know building that community that I want. So my question to you is this, would you be interested in looking forward daily and or an interview format? Please let me know by tweeting a response on Twitter. You can send it in a message or a, a tweet doesn't matter. Uh, That's been the most fun format recently. It's been what I've been on the most. So thank you very much and stay tuned for episode eight, where we will talk about Dave Graber's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. We also talk about the myth of the barter that so many economists cling to. Again, let me know your opinion on the formats discussed. And until next time, remember to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Thanks for listening and going on this journey. If you were inspired to create an amazing future, leave us a five-star review, share with your friends, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.